Okay, if you have a Bible or an app that provides Bible passages, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 19. So, once again, <laughs> once again, I'm going to offer a trigger warning. Uh, this, the story we're about to read is pretty upsetting. There's a, there's a scene of someone dying, like a weirdly graphic scene of a person dying. Uh, it's it's a, almost like a horror movie a little bit if you, if you read it with a certain kind of imagination. So I did want to just offer that up just like... There, like right off the bat, we're going to read a story that is that could be a little bit upsetting at face value. So this is like what my fourth or fifth trigger warning right before the sermon in a row. Maybe Genesis was a bad idea for a streaming series. Uh, when, when I first started planning Genesis, I thought we'd be, you know, silly me. I thought we'd be like, you know, all gathered together in one space and we could, you know, kind of go through this together and not, not have to every single week say like, look, wherever you are, this story might traumatize you low-key. So um, if you want to skip this and come back to it, it, it's a weird story. I mean, I really feel like that goes without saying at this point. We're in Genesis. Of course, it's a weird story. Um, but anyway, just letting you know, there, there's going to be a scene early on where a person dies and it's going to feel a little bit jarring. So that's coming up soon. Get, so get ready for that. Now, a little bit of review before we get going. Last week, we looked at kind of the intro to the story or kind of the, the lead up to the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the story which at face value we've been told is just about these two cities that have gotten really bad and now they're going to be destroyed by God. And we talked a little bit about last week, like wh what's going on there? How did all that kind of come to be? We kind of broke down what that is and more, more probably more importantly, what it isn't, meaning like it is not a story about sexual orientation or like crazy parties or whatever. It was a story about a group of people being indifferent and hostile towards the needs of the marginalized and the poor and the foreigner. So we talked a little bit about that, or we did a whole sermon last week about that. If you want to go back and revisit it, th that, that might be useful because what we're going to do now is we're going to pick up right where that story left off. So just to review, these two cities are just about to be destroyed. And some visitors come to the city and they warn, specifically, they come to warn one guy named Lot and tell him to get himself and his wife and his daughters out of town as quickly as possible. So that's kind of where the story picks up in Genesis 19, beginning in verse 15. And if you're, again, if you're on our page on collectivechurch.net, all the verses can be found below the video, below the links to all the places I mentioned before. So uh, anyway, Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 15, it says, With the coming of dawn, the angels, or the messengers, urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, when Lot hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them, to, and led them safely out of the city, so the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. So then there's a little bit of negotiation here about like what where lot can and can't go and um oh by the way when it when the the messengers take lot and his family to the edge of town and they start telling him like here's what you do like run and when they say don't look back it was always sort of framed to me when i was a kid i took this warning as literally as possible i felt like it was like like in the like you know at the end of raider i'm gonna mildly spoil the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is a 40-year-old movie, but I'm going to spoil it a little bit. There's the scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where um, they're about to open this, like, Ark of the Covenant archaeological thing. Anyway, 
not, not to over-contextualize the movie, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they're about to open this thing, and Indiana Jones tells uh, his friend that he's with, he says, close your eyes, because if you look at the Ark of the Covenant, then apparently you will melt like, a, like an old candle. So that's what happens at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so I always sort of imagined that that was the warning here. If you look back, it's going to be like Indiana Jones looking at the Ark of the Covenant. Don't do it or your face will melt or whatever. So I took the warning as literally as possible. Don't turn around. Run as fast as you can and don't turn around. And uh, like it was a magical curse that would happen if they literally turn their head too far. Like if you turn it this far, it's fine. But if you turn it this far, you're dead and that's it. That's what I always sort of assumed what was, was kind of the warning here. Um, anyway, so a warning is given. Go as fast as you can. Don't look back. Then uh, there's, again, some negotiation about like where they can and can't go and where it's safe to go. And then in verse 23, it says, By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, which is horrifying, from the Lord out of the heavens. Then he, thus he overthrew the cities and the entire plain, destroying those who lived in the cities and all the vegetation in the land. And then here in verse 26, this is where we're gonna sort of stop down. Verse 26, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Okay, so this kind of confirms my Indiana Jones suspicion before, like, okay, the warning was given, don't turn around, don't look back. She does look back and she doesn't melt like in Indiana Jones. She turns, she turns into a pillar of salt. I don't mean to laugh, but what the heck is going on here? What, what are we even meant to get out of this? So. This feels straight out of a horror movie, does it not? Because what's happening here? When was Lot's wife turned into salt specifically because she did what the messengers told her not to do? She, she, she disobeyed the most literal of possible commands and in doing so died horrifically. And so, so we're kind of left with the question, did God strike her dead because she turned her head around and looked at a burning city behind her? Also, by the way, she has no name. This has always bothered me. This, this character in the story who has this truly horrific, startling way of just being killed is never given a name. We, we are never told this person's name. All she's referred to here as is Lot's wife. So that's a problem. But also the fact that she does this thing that any person would do and she is killed for it and she's turned into salt. So we should be having a lot of problems with this. This story should, I've said this a lot in this series too. This story should probably bother us. We, we should be a little bit like, wait, what? Like, I don't feel like, I, I feel like this was an overreaction to a person checking the rear view mirror. So as I see it, there are three major problems that we need to deal with in this story. So we'll just go through them one by one and then maybe there's something we can, we can get out of this. So the first problem here, which we kind of dealt with last week as well, which is the violence against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, because it's, it's more graphically described here than it was last week. So we covered this a little bit, but it bears revisiting since, again, because it's so graphically described. But the problem, as we laid out last week, is these cities that, that had become hot, the, the reason these cities are kind of targeted in this way is because they've been hostile towards foreigners as well as the poor and the marginalized. In the words of the prophet Ezekiel, they had become overfed and unconcerned with the needs of everybody else. So in spite of how it's often used, the story is not meant to be a warning that God will burn down your neighborhood if you don't follow the rules exactly right. It's meant to be an indictment against the posture of indifference towards the suffering of others, which creates a little bit of cognitive dissonance, doesn't it? Because 
the whole problem is they're indifferent towards the suffering of others. But if we read this story and we think like, yeah, they got what they deserve, then don't we become indifferent to the suffering of others? You know what I mean? Like the story should bother us. I, mean, I, think, I, think, I think the text itself wants us to be bothered by this story. Maybe we're supposed to hear the story and be bothered by it. Maybe that's the point. We, we don't want to see people suffer even when it's people who don't seem to mind causing the suffering of others. Maybe wrestling with that tension is one of the reasons that this story is here in the first place. Maybe, maybe the story is here to confront our own impulse towards like being fine with suffering as long as the person who suffers kind of sort of deserves it, you know? Because that, the, people, the people in the city of Sodom believe that the people that they're allowing to suffer or causing to suffer, that they deserve it in some sort of way. And so we're sort of confronted with our own kind of bent in that direction. So maybe wrestling with that tension is one of the reasons why this story is here in the first place. I don't really know. It's, it's, one, it's one that I will probably always struggle with a little bit. So that's the first problem, but that's not really the main thing going on in this part. The second problem, and this, this is the thing that has always kind of puzzled me a little bit. Why is she turned into salt? That's a weird detail, isn't it? It's, it's a thing you never see again, ever, in the scriptures. Like, this one time that this person has the audacity to look over her own shoulder, she is turned into salt. Why? Like, of all, the way, of all the ways for a person to be struck dead, why is she turned into salt? Well, it turns out, and there's some really interesting research on this. It, it turns out, I, I, hope, I hope you're as interested in this as I am, but um, the image of a pillar of salt is actually meant to be a geographical marker. It's meant to, to remind us where the story is, like physically, geographically, where the story is taking place. We're, because we're led to believe that the story takes place in the Jordan Valley, near the Dead Sea. Now the Dead Sea is famously the saltiest body of water, major body of water, in the world. And it, the, the salinity level of the Dead Sea is 33.7%, which is 8.6 times saltier than any of the oceans. So I had to look that up. It's not like I just walk around with that knowledge in my head. I'm reading it off of a piece of paper. But that's, that, that is the science behind why the Dead Sea is the way it is. So it's so salty that fish and plants cannot flourish there. The Dead Sea is, it is so salty that life itself cannot thrive. Or that like, um, other than like bacteria. So in the Dead Sea Valley, and by the way, if, if you're on our page on collectivechurch.net, if you scroll all the way to the bottom, there's a, there's a line that says recommended resources. And one of the resources is a whole article about like salt formations near the Dead Sea. It's super interesting. So in the Dead Sea Valley, there are lots of these salt formations that almost look like an art installation. Like if, if, you, if you just Google Dead Sea salt formations, you will see so many interesting, just random naturally occurring piles of salt. And uh, in and around the shallowest parts of the Dead Sea. In fact, I read, I spent some time reading about the chemistry of why this happens because that's how, that's how prepared I want to be for you. I spent a lot of time learning about the chemistry of salt formations in and around the Dead Sea. Uh, but, but I didn't understand it quite enough to try and explain it here. I'm not Walter White. I can't just stand here and explain like chemical compounds in a way that makes it interesting. Um, but, but this, I will say, if you end up home, homeschooling your kids this fall, not to bring it down, but if you do, this could be an interesting like side project in a science class, if you will. So um, salt formations in and around the Dead Sea, super interesting stuff. Anyway, um, in the ancient Near East, about 6,000 years ago, 
they didn't have the benefit of understanding the chemical compounds and the salinity levels in the Dead Sea. So all they knew was that there are these unusual salt formations all over the place in this one particular area. And lots of the salt formations, like I said, they're in all sorts of shapes and sizes, but lots of them are about the shape and size of a human person. So one of the questions that people would start to ask who lived in and around this area 6,000 years ago was, what if these salt formations, what if some of these salt formations used to be people? Because this one is about the shape and size of an average sized man or woman. So they would ask, where did they come from? Maybe this was, maybe this used to be a person. And so if they were people, who were they? How did they get here? Why are they still here? So there are these salt formations and one of the questions, one of the dominant questions of the people who lived in and around this area was, if these were people, who were they? Where did they come from? Again, because they didn't have, like, they did not have the, the knowledge that we have about, like, again, chemical compounds and um, salinity levels and all that. So the human-sized salt pillars were part of the landscape in this particular part of the world. And the idea that it formed around that um, was that not only were the people who had been turned into salt, because the assumption was some of these were people possibly who were like killed and turned into salt. So not only were the people who had, not only were they turned into salt and killed in an unusual way, but there are also some sort of like um, cursed sort of sense to it that they were doomed to spend the rest of their lives frozen in place in this one particular spot. It's not just that they were dead, it's that they were frozen in time. It's that they, they could not move from the spot. It's that they would literally become part of the landscape in the time. So, so when, when we look at the story and we think like, well, that's like of all the things to happen to this woman, she's turned into salt. Well, it's again, it's, it's a geographical marker. It, it, this is sort of, it, it is meant to sort of signify the time and place that this story occurs. So that's, that, that is sort of a, a weird answer to the why, why a salt pillar question. And then the third problem that we gotta deal with is why are they not allowed to look back? Why, why, is, this, um, why is this a capital offense? Why are they not allowed to turn their heads around and look at the city where they've lived like being destroyed behind them? Does Lot's wife deserve to die for taking a glimpse in the rearview mirror? So here's the thing about this. There's a motif in the story that deals with moving forward and lingering um, in a dangerous place with sort of the, the juxtaposition of getting out of here and staying put. So you, you sort of have kind of the tension between these two postures that already exist in the story. In fact, in verse 16, we're told early on, we're told that Lot lingered and the messengers told him, you got to get going. You are lingering and you, you, you need to get going. And there's this interesting thing that happens on the page. If you're looking at the Hebrew text that you don't see in the English. Um, but this, this interesting thing that happens is over the word lingered in Hebrew, there is a mark called a shalshalet. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. But this mark, it's, you only see this mark four times in the entire body of the Hebrew scriptures. In the entire Old Testament, you only see this four times, which is remarkably rare. So the shalshalet is usually used in musical composition and other he Hebrew texts. So almost exclusively, you, you only see this in musical comp composition and it's used to indicate that a sound is meant to resonate for a long time. So you have this word linger. The text says that Lot lingered. And so we tend to think like this means like he, he, he was not moving quite quickly enough, 
but because there's the shalshalet, I, I can't draw it. It looks kind of like a little squiggly that happens like right over the, right over the word. And so right over the word lingered, you have this shalshalet, which again is used in musical composition as a sign that a note is supposed to be held out longer. So I know we have at least one, if not two or three uh, music teachers who watched. So hopefully this won't cringe, make you cringe too much. But this is to, to use like modern day musical terms. This is like a whole note. And so you have, I'm going to draw a whole note. Is that looking up? Is that is basically a whole note? It's like a circle with some like fat sides to it. So it's fine. It's a whole note. So a whole note is a note that's meant to be held out for four beats. So if you are looking at a piece of music, a piece of sheet music, and you have a whole note, it tells you like this note, you're supposed to hold this note. Like whatever, whatever sound you're making, you have to hold this note for four consistent beats. So they're told that Lot lingered. He held the whole note. But the thing is, they want him to move it along. They want him to start playing eighth notes. Those are eighth notes. So in one bar, I guess, I don't know, like one part of, sorry, I'm going to avoid any more of that, of music theory. I'm not qualified to do that. But one whole note is equal to eight eighth notes. So Lot is playing a whole note. And the messengers are saying, you do not have this kind of time, my friend. You need to be playing eighth notes. You need to move forward. So we're told early on that there is an impulse towards lingering, towards playing the whole note. So then later, when Lot's wife turns around, it's not just that she takes like a quick gl glimpse behind her. It's, it's not like you broke the one rule and now, now you're being punished for it. You're, you're literally being struck dead. That's, I don't think that's what the text is actually trying to say. She's not taking a quick glance back. She's lingering. She's playing the whole note. She's, she, the, the one thing they're supposed to keep doing is keep moving forward. And she can't move forward. She's playing a whole note when she should be playing eighth notes. She's refusing to move forward and as a result, she can't move forward. She is frozen in place. She becomes part of the landscape. There's some rabbinical sources that speculate that maybe Lot, um, even though we know that Lot um, moved intentionally to Sodom as an adult, that he was considered a foreigner to the people who lived there. Um, there's some rabbinic sources that um, claim that Lot's wife was probably a native-born citizen of this place, and so she probably had much deeper roots, that this place was more like home for her. It was harder for her to leave because she had been more embedded in, in that place, in the community, and that maybe, maybe leaving would not have been her first choice, even in this situation. So Lot is, or they're told, play the eighth notes, and she's, her posture is, but, but I don't know any other place. Like, I, I can't keep moving forward. She's not struck dead by God. She's frozen in place. In fact, um, it, it, if the image of like fire and heat are kind of to be carried forward, then one of the things that's going to happen is that things are going to be incinerated in, in, in its path. And so, um, and so you have this image of this person who lingers, not just takes a quick look in the mirror, she can't move forward. And so she becomes part of the landscape. She's not struck dead by God. She is frozen in place by her own sense of, I, I can't, I can't move forward. I can't get beyond this thing that I need to get beyond. So, um, so in, again, she's, the problem here isn't 
you looked back. The problem is you can't move forward. Um, in Exodus chapter 16, if you, if you jump over to Exodus chapter 16, you kind of see this motif every once in a while show up in the scriptures. So in Exodus 16, um, you have this story and you have this, this group of people, the Hebrew people who have been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years and now they've been set free. And after they've been set free, what, one of the things that they begin to discover is there are certain things about being free that are more challenging than there were before. Like um, food supply, that's a thing that we now have to worry about in a way that we didn't have to worry about before. And so one of the things they begin doing rather than like solving the new problem is, but, but we didn't have to worry about this before. So shouldn't we maybe go back? So in Exodus chapter 16, in uh, verse two, you have this group of people who again were until very recently enslaved in another place. In verse two, it says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So at, at the first sign of, oh, this is gonna be harder than we thought, their first response to that is, maybe we shouldn't have left at all. Maybe enslavement was better than having to worry about our own food supply. And so you have this sort of posture. Sometimes we can't help but look back and we can't help but linger. We can't help but idealize the thing that came before, even when the thing that we've left behind is killing us. So in fact, they say we should have just stayed back and died. They would have rather been killed by the thing that they understood than had to deal with the new thing that is right in front of them. So some, sometimes the future is so scary and, and the pain of, and terror of yesterday feels oddly familiar and comfortable to us. Look at his, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter seven in verse 10, it says this, it says, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. According to the writer of Ecclesiastes, it, it, not only is it not helpful, but it's, it's not wise to ask the question, why was it so much better before? Like, where does that get us? How, how does that help us now to begin looking back and saying like, oh my gosh, it was so much better before this happened. And how many, I mean, right now, how useful is, is this to us? Like how, how much time do we currently spend, myself included, thinking, man, I would absolutely trade the problems of 2019 for the problems of 2020. You know what I mean? Like how much, how nostalgic are you for January? Like, um, it is, like, we are in a time right now where the only, like, all of our good memories, it feels like, are behind us. And all of the things that we enjoyed in life happened before all this stuff. And so we're kind of left, like, yeah, we're looking back because the thing that we're in is so much worse than anything most of us have ever faced before. And so this writer in Ecclesiastes kind of confronts us with this and challengingly. And I mean, this is, this is a thing that I am currently really struggling with, which is like, it's not wise to look back and say like, yeah, it was so much better. Why was it so much better? Like, maybe it was. And it's not, it's not bad to have fond memories and it's not bad to look back on things with some sort of nostalgia. The, the problem is like, if, you, if we idealize the thing that came before, then it makes everything else seem pretty bleak. And so um, I think one of the most natural things that we, we do is look back and ask questions about like, you know, what exactly is it that we've left behind? What, what exactly is it that we're being asked to move forward past? Um, when I was in college, I read um, the Kurt Vonnegut novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. It's a weird book, but I, it, it stayed with me. There's this one quote from the book that has always really stayed with me. It's a quote about this passage, about the story of Lot's wife. 
And um, so th- I'm going I'm to read to you just this very short quote from Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. And he, this is what he writes. He says, And Lot's wife, of course, was told not to look back. But she did look back. And I love her for that because it was so human. She was turned in, so she was turned into a pillar of salt. So it goes. People aren't supposed to look back. This book is a failure, and it had to be, since it was written by a pillar of salt. So he uses the story of Lot's wife, and he says, like, the most human thing I've ever found in the Bible is this person who can't help herself but look back. And he talks about how the book is my act of lo- looking back, and so that makes me a pillar of salt, too. Um, brilliant. It's, it is just... That, that always just really resonated with me. Not because, again, like it's easy to read these stories and cast judgment on characters in the stories and to say, well, like, well, you shouldn't have looked back. They told you not to look back. But yeah, but looking back is the most natural thing that we do. And so it's, it's just so human to look back and to wonder and to, and to miss the things that came before. We all have moments that make us feel like pillars of salt. I love that Vonnegut says, like, this whole book was written by a pillar of salt. I, I am the pillar of salt. Um, we all have these moments. We're, we're terrified of what's in front of us. We're eager to retreat back to what's familiar, even if the thing that was familiar was killing us before we left it. And it, it leaves us with a question about ourselves. Are, are there things that I'm holding on to? Are there things that I need to let go of? Are, are, are there parts of my life that are turning me into the metaphorical pillar of salt? Are, are, there, are there ways that I have idealized the thing that happened before now? And may, I mean, maybe you've gone through a painful transition. Maybe you've changed jobs. Maybe you've moved to a new city. Maybe you've had a relationship change and you're struggling to adjust. Um, I remember, um, I realize I talk about this a lot, but it's, it's, it's been a pretty defining moment in my life. Um, when I was fired, I remember uh, when I was fired from the church where I worked before we started Collective, and I remember feeling so frustrated and so angry and so embarrassed by the whole thing and kind of reckoning through that in like a week, like not even a week or two after it happened, I remember I was having a conversation with somebody and that person asked me, look, if they called you tomorrow and offered you your old job back, would you want it? Would you take it? And I had this moment of, no, I wouldn't. Like, I didn't enjoy the process of being forcibly removed from the situation without my consent. But when asked the question, would you want to go back? My answer, I mean, like, every part of me was like, absolutely not. Like, I, I don't ever want to go back. That, that, was, that, that was not a healthy place for me to be. So I realized that, like, yeah, looking back on that and, like, lingering on it and, like, just allowing myself to kind of be defined by that in, in all these ways that prevented me from moving forward, it was turning me into a pillar of salt. I was getting, like, stuck in the landscape. Um, look at Luke chapter 17. Jesus, Jesus actually brings this story up. For, for a character who almost get, gets no recognition at all, Lot's wife seems to have kind of a long life in the, in the thought process of, of the people who can't come after the story. So in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says this in verse 32. Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. What is he talking about? Why does, he, why does he connect this idea of losing and keeping your life with Lot's wife? Because, again, she wasn't turning around. She wasn't just glimpsing behind her. She was lingering. She was refusing to move forward. There was a, there was a life that she didn't want to lose 
and so she lost more. So there is, um, so there, there's this way that Jesus sort of looks at kind of all things and says, like, whenever, whenever we, we encounter a major shift, that's a loss. That, that is a transition that perhaps we were or were not that prepared for. And so this is why any major change can kind of feel like a death. Even, even if it's a good change, it feels a little bit like, like a loss, like, like it's something we have to grieve. Even, even a graduation or, um, like, 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 like I said, like a new job, like a graduation requires leaving something behind. A new job requires leaving behind the old job. Um, a new house requires leaving behind the old house. Like there, there's always, anytime, anytime there's something new and positive, there's also a kind of a death that kind of comes along with that. And Jesus is acknowledging, remember Lot's wife. Remember every time there's some sort of new opportunity for growth or change or new life, something else is gonna have to die in the process. And if not, if, 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 my whole, if my whole agenda is to preserve all the stuff that I am comfortable with, then I'm gonna lose more, which is like whatever the next good thing is. And this isn't to say that we shouldn't grieve about what we lose or that we shouldn't remember our own stories. I, I, I love history and I love looking back on these stories and hearing these stories, but it's, it's the difference between knowing our stories and allowing for the possibility that our stories have gotten us to where they are for, for having an understanding of who we are and where we come from versus letting that be the only thing that defines us and letting that be the thing that kind of keeps us in place. The, those are, it's healthy to remember, it's healthy to grieve, but that's not what the story of Lot's wife is about. This is not a story about somebody who's looking back and grieving. This is a story about somebody who's looking back and doesn't wanna move. Um, th this is a story about the refusal to, to acknowledge that things are changing. And it, it's, it's about allowing the past to define us and to remain stuck in unhealthy patterns until we just become part of the landscape. So Lot's wife doesn't just take a look back, she digs in, she, she can't keep moving, so she stays exactly in that one place. So in what ways do each of us become a pillar of salt? Maybe there are people you've been trying to please or to gain the approval of, and you've been trying, and you've been, you, you've been doing every single thing that you think that they want you to do, but it's just not working. And so may, maybe you need to be set free from the need to please everybody else. Maybe that, that impulse is kind of turning us into a pillar of salt. Maybe, maybe there's a system that used to work for you, but you've become disillusioned and you don't know how to feel or what to believe. Maybe you've gone through a crisis of faith and you would rather go the rest of your life pretending to still believe the things that you always were told you're supposed to believe rather than out loud admitting, like, I don't know what I believe about these things anymore. And so maybe that, maybe the fear of a change in belief structure or disillusionment, maybe that is holding you in place. Maybe there are destructive patterns that you keep returning to over and over and over again. Maybe those are turning you into a pillar of salt. From my own perspective, I have, um, without getting too much into it, uh, the past couple of months have kind of brought some stuff up for me. Um, that I either wasn't aware of in myself or wasn't prepared to deal with in myself. And um, I've, been, I've been kind of dealing with, with this in remote therapy and, and trying to deal with like, what are all the things that I've been carrying around with me that I didn't even realize I was carrying? What, what are all the, what are all, 
all the, I don't even know what to say, how to describe it yet exactly, but, but maybe, maybe you've been, maybe that's you. Maybe you've been carrying around some baggage. Maybe you've got some wounds. Maybe you've got some stuff that you were doing a really good job of suppressing and then all the things of 2020 have happened and what that's done is it sort of shined a light on, on the stuff that you've been trying to keep tucked away in a corner. And so um, and we realize, or at least I ha have realized like, oh my gosh, like I have become sort of a pillar of salt in ways that I didn't even realize because I just wasn't dealing with the things that I needed to deal with. And um, that's a hard thing to know about yourself. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to recognize and it's, it's a hard thing to begin to work through. So I don't know if that's you. I don't, I don't know if there are um, things either conscious or subconscious that you're needing to work through, push past, um, grow beyond. But that's the invitation and that's the challenge. Where the story of Lot's wife isn't like a story about a cruel God who just strikes people dead in weird, random, arbitrary ways. It's a story about what does it look like when the thing that we're leaving behind, or the thing that we need to leave behind is kind of killing us, but we can't. And so we sort of become frozen and we become stuck in the landscape. So may we acknowledge all the ways that we have become like pillars of salt and may we then begin to move beyond those things. May we begin to wrestle. May we begin to resist the pull backwards. And may we find that growing beyond and working through the things that we are invited to work through, may we find that there is a greater sense of health and joy and grace and peace when we continue moving forward. When we acknowledge where we've come from and we grieve the things that we left behind, but we don't let those things be what define us and we don't get stuck and like these old patterns or these old cycles, we don't become pillars of salt. We can become more human and more alive as we keep moving forward. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you for this story and all the ways that this challenges us. Um, for all the ways that I don't understand and quite frankly don't like this story, I acknowledge that there is something here for me to walk away with. This this impulse to become like a pillar of salt. And um, as, as each of us kind of works through what that means for us, may we acknowledge what it is that we are attempting to leave behind or what it is that we've been resisting, working through, working past. May we become healthier, may we become more human, more alive. Uh, may we find that there is greater joy and greater life when we, when we choose to push past all the things that are pulling us backwards. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.